0: Chapter Nine of Dr. Paul's Theory. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dr. Paul's Theory by Alice Mangold Deal. Chapter Nine The Beginning of the Sequel. at first hugh felt and seemed crushed he had thought of many difficulties and troubles that might await him in his married life but the one thing which had not entered into his calculations lilia's death was the unexpected occurrence which happened he had sometimes felt from the first beginning of their married life that something was hanging over him some fatality the whole story of his acquaintance with the Pims was so strange that the memory of it oppressed him perhaps this accounted for the feeling of discomfort which was now and then almost a dread of the future there were moments when he had thought that perhaps he was destined to die early and he had made his will carefully after much consultation with mr mervyn who was always as it were ready to hand during his short married life never never once did he think he was to lose his beautiful tormentor and so tragically At first he was prostrate no one could rouse him his father came to him and stayed dr hilliard spent his sundays at the pine wood but efforts to coax and even startle him out of his gloom were fruitless for a whole year he could not shake off the vivid recollection of what none but himself knew the crowning horror of lilia's deathbed her awful request and his promise but through all this darkness of soul his faith did not waver he reproached himself bitterly that he had not insisted more struggled more to help lilia in her uncertainty her unbelief he blamed himself for her dying blasphemy and for what he considered his cowardice in promising to kill himself he went through their short life together over and over again telling himself that at this juncture he ought to have said and done this thing at such another that he spent his days in listless wanderings about the pine-wood his nights or the best part of them in feverish study which availed him little or nothing thus passed the first year of his widowerhood then came another sharp shock the death of his good kind friend dr hilliard after a short illness of ten days during those ten days of close attendance upon his patron hugh's eyes were opened he saw that the existence of which in a human being he had never suspected never believed possible a lofty soul doctors are proverbially the worst patients dr hilliard well aware that this was the end of his career was a little impatient perhaps as to remedies which could not possibly reverse the fiat in a few days his soul would be required of him he knew that he bore his physical agony with stoicism his anxiety to leave his affairs in perfect order was so intense it was a greater soporific than any narcotic he talked much and often between the paroxysms to the young man in whose genius his faith had never wavered he told his life the difficulties he had successfully fought against and overcome The awful temptations he had struggled with to the bitter end the enmities which had dogged his footsteps and poisoned his simplest enjoyments to hugh each day of dr hilliard's existence each day of that man who was supposed to be one of the most enviable beings in creation who was in receipt of splendid fees courted by all classes the much lauded hero of the medical press and the secretly hated of all the unsuccessful of the faculty and their name is legion was a miniature martyrdom and he was awaiting his release with eager joy a joy only damped by remorse that he had not done better had not been a more faithful servant of the giver of all the miserable way in which i have crawled through my difficulties he wailed to his protege paul never never fly low soar over your temptations and troubles Or when you come to die you will be ashamed of yourself like i am it was dr hilliard's exalted opinion of what a man should be that first abashed then roused hugh to cast aside self and live a new life very soon after his friend's death he set himself resolutely to a fresh beginning he had been strongly recommended by dr hilliard to the influential men who came to shake his hand for the last time and his start in practice as a specialist in nerve cases was made easy to him. He took a house recently vacated by a well-known physician in a street frequented by doctors near Regent Street, and soon had plenty of patients, mostly former patients of Dr. Hilliard's, who already knew him by repute. Before five years were over, he had made some remarkable cures, had contributed some original and, in certain cases, Startling papers on obscure nervous diseases to the leading medical journals and was elected to appointments in four metropolitan hospitals. Then he was consulted by royalty and his private practice doubled itself. Ten years passed away, fifteen. It was now nineteen years since the awful day of Lilia's death, and Dr. Hugh Paul was not only known throughout the English speaking world, but his works were translated into french german and italian and his name was honoured by the medical profession in all countries his private life might be summed up in one word ralph ralph was the name he had allotted to the puny pale babe who had been the unconscious instrument of his salvation from self-murder ralph had been the name of an invalid uncle his father's younger brother, of whom he had pleasant childish recollections. A gentle, white-faced young man stretched on a couch in a pretty garden, who had seemed to know exactly what little boys liked, and to let them have it. So when he stood, one of the little group of black-garmented persons at the old stone font in the Pinewood Church, and Mr. Mervyn said, Name this child. He remembered his uncle, and said, Ralph the delicate babe with the thoughtful blue eyes grew slowly and painfully from babyhood into childhood from childhood into youth at first hugh felt the responsibility of being father and mother in one to the fragile boy a heavy care the child was always in his mind an anxiety that never left him one day he had gone to a well-known educationist almost in despair after detailing his experiments in nursery training which up to then seemed a failure he said what am i to do leave the child alone like i left mine said the authority get him a good nurse and don't interfere with her without necessity when you have done with the nurse get him a good governess then send him to school to hugh who had hitherto acted as a head gardener devoted to one sickly plant the advice seemed rough but he plucked up courage and acted upon it the boy grew up without many complications but he was a strange silent lad his two characteristics were an unappeasable love of study and a concentrated but undemonstrative devotion to his father from the beginning of the change in hue when he first began his professional life in london it was his custom to spend saturday and sunday at the pinewood the trio the tall now gaunt and careworn looking man the thin effeminate boy and the mastiff nero who always dogged their heels an immediate descendant of hugh's first acquaintance at the pine wood were familiar figures to the country folk who were attached to dr paul with an attachment born of his unvarying justice and kindliness following the advice given by the authority ralph's instruction in matters of faith and dogma was strictly ordinary and orthodox and, remembering the result of lilia's peculiar upbringing hugh was careful to throw his son into the company of others of his own age as much as possible he failed to see what others saw that the boy could not endure the companionship of his fellows and only suffered it because it was his father's will meanwhile ralph showed great aptitude for science and at nineteen was to his great delight appointed secretary to the famous geologist w blank who had been one of his grandfather sir roderick's intimate friends at the time of the second storm that shook dr paul's life to its foundations ralph was away on a walking tour with the great scientist hugh paul was alone in his townhouse he was sitting at the large dining table in the big silent room the thin dark-eyed man whose prematurely white hair added a dignity to the pensive beauty of his face would have been a suggestive figure to an imaginative painter as he slowly ate his frugal dinner his eyes fixed as he continued some important train of thought now and then leaning back in his chair and absently crumbling his bread while the old butler jones hovered noiselessly about in the background this picture of well-appointed solitude might have been named successful but alone perhaps never until ralph went on this tour had hugh so realised his desolation it was the height of the london season and that very day he had had three important consultations beside hospital and other work but the silence of the huge quiet house oppressed him he found it tiresome to eat he was planning to tire himself further by preparing a paper on a recent case for the lancet when a carriage drove up to the door and there was a somewhat violent peal of the hall bell jones who had been butler to dr hilliard till his death and then accepted service with hugh in preference to any other knew his rules thoroughly he was a spare little man well fitted for his vacation for he had a respectful almost soothing manner which softened the denials he had so often to give to nerve patients wild to obtain The immediate attendance of the great authority, Dr. Paul. He went silently out and gently opened the street door. The smart single broom and pair drawn up before the house was as unfamiliar to him as were the two gentlemen standing on the doorstep, one of whom was tall and fair, the other being short and dark, with piercing black eyes and a thick black moustache. Both were dressed in the height of fashion in fact were evidently putti muatre it was the tall fair man who slightly lifting his hat said in good english but with a foreign accent can we see dr hugh paul at once the bold demand for hugh was now a consulting physician to be approached through the patient's ordinary medical attendant nearly deprived poor jones of breath he gave but one gasp only though and remembering these were foreigners and ignoramuses in medical etiquette recovered himself and said politely but in a somewhat shocked tone of voice i am very sorry sir but that is quite impossible the fair man turned to the dark one with a smile and said something rapidly in a foreign tongue upon which the dark young man produced a card-case and presented jones with his card saying "Please." you will give thee docteur in broken and very foreign sounding english jones seeing the word prince prefixed to a to him unreadable and unpronounceable name was somewhat startled for the title meant royalty to his british mind for a moment he was puzzled then saying will you please step this way he hurried along the bare stone hall and ushering the distinguished visitors into the cheerless waiting-room with the skylight rows of dining-room chairs against the walls and an old dining-table whose dingy cloth was strewn with as dingily covered volumes of illustrated journals hurried to his master with the card hugh glanced at it listlessly read le prince andriocchi and laid it aside stray patients arriving at odd moments were always dismissed with a certain formula and hugh was not giving a second thought to the prince andriocchi or his card when an anxious voice piped at his elbow what am i to say sir and turning he saw jones watching him in evident dismay say he asked to whom to the prince sir i took him into the waiting-room you took him into the waiting-room repeated hugh hardly believing his own ears for a patient to be admitted outside regular hours and against all rule was a most unwonted occurrence and by jones the impregnable the unassailable had a golden talisman no such an idea was a treason to the faithful old servant i i thought as as he was a prince sir stammered jones oh well never mind i will explain to him that i cannot see him now said dr paul good-naturedly rising and going to the waiting-room the two men were seated but rose and bowed as he entered the tall fair man who had candid blue eyes and an insinuating smile informed hugh in laboured but fairly correct english that they had been recommended to consult him by the spanish ambassador whose son had been cured by him last season in so marvellous a manner but your highness is surely not spanish asked hugh glancing at the card he still held between his fingers the prince said the fair man bowing deferentially in the direction of the dark little gentleman who was watching them while he nervously twisted his moustache is from italy he is Italian. it is madame la princesse who is from the land of chivalry it is for madame la princesse that we come to visit you hugh bowed she is not very ill i hope he said awkwardly he had had but little experience of the denizens of other countries and this had been of their learned men who have a family likeness no matter in what latitude they are born these two elegants embarrassed him how shall i explain said the fair man knitting his brow and gazing at the skylight you speak french no?" my friend the prince speak french as Italian. i am sorry but i tell you monsieur le docteur best way i can you so clever you understand me with all my faults monsieur le prince here he married this lady who is the daughter of the duc de Saldanès. you know his name of course he is great at the court of spain you must surely hear that the princess is one of the most beautiful ladies in all the world for the papers de société as you call them tell everyone that but the princesse adore monsieur le prince he adore her but soon after the noce madame becomes more delicate and she likes not to walk or drive she shows no inclination for the world she goes too much to church and gets pale maigre in the truth monsieur le docteur she shows symptoms of being what you call a saint the fair man raised his eyebrows and looked so oddly at dr paul as he half whispered the last sentence that hugh felt inclined to laugh i fear i cannot presume to cure a disposition to sanctity sir he said his voice sounded rough in contradistinction to the suave delicately pitched tones of his interlocutor i try to cure nervous diseases i cannot cure a tendency which the most exacting husband can scarcely disapprove monsieur is catholique insinuated the fair man sweetly i what i beg your pardon sir but you took me by surprise added hugh his thin face flushing Then he explained that if there were any symptoms of physical disease he would see the princess with pleasure but that he did not prescribe for the mind the fair man whose white satin manners and womanish grace were peculiarly repugnant to hugh rapidly translated dr pole's speech to the prince in italian a language with which hugh had a slight acquaintance and the prince made a voluble reply which touched hugh as being the earnest appeal of a man who was in considerable anxiety on the subject of his wife i have understood his highness he said somewhat dryly when the count he had been addressed as such by the prince turned towards him to interpret and i will willingly see the lady and prescribe for her if it be in my power to do her any good which i doubt ah sir but we do not doubt it said the count with enthusiasm nor did le docteur foster who saw her it is two days ago but whose medicine the princesse will not accept dr foster saw her asked hugh puzzled dr foster was a nerve doctor with a large fashionable practice much in favour with lady patients i fear if dr foster has been unsuccessful i can do nothing further persuasions on the part of the count who interpreted everything to his princely friend led to hugh's provisional promise that after two days he would see the lady he was to meet dr Foster in consultation on the morrow and intended to talk with him on the subject. Then a difficulty was explained to him. The princess objected to doctors in toto. The meeting must be brought about by stratagem. The great dr B S had fallen in with this arrangement and had had a long interview with the princess one evening at the Italian embassy in Paris without her realising that he was one of the obnoxious faculty until it was over but could he do nothing asked hugh astonished monsieur he said the same as the docteur z in rome and your docteur foster here in londres the princess has a disease which is rare in one who has all the world at her charming feet she likes not life she longs for death or let us say the heavens which interpreted means the lady is a spoilt creature and is thoroughly discontented thought hugh with a smile of amusement after his visitors had oppressed him with a profusion of thanks had bowed themselves out and driven off in the carriage at first the interview amused him but after the novelty had worn off he felt a distaste for the task he had undertaken neither an onerous nor an unpleasant one the interviewing of a beautiful and evidently amiable spanish lady but he disliked women as patients even more than he disliked them as companions his liking for the sex lay buried in lilia's grave after his consultation with dr foster next day he took him aside and told him of the prince's visit and request i thought they would come to you said dr foster a short stout little man his eyes twinkling curious fellow that count isn't he i can't make him out means well though i dare say a sort of cousin of the princes i understand you know all about the family don't you no well the andriocchis are one of the most ancient italian families he came into everything a couple of years ago at his father's death he is only six and twenty though he looks older i saw him here the first season he got into a fast set and did no good last year his family married him families in those countries always sought the young folks and couple them you know wonderful match a great beauty daughter of one of those awfully blue-blooded spanish grandees duke de Saldanhes, great favourite at court she's a charming woman but dr foster shook his head and looked whole volumes of wisdom but asked hugh suddenly interested and sorry he did not know why well perhaps you'll find out she baffled me that's all i know first i thought there might be a suicidal tendency or simple melancholia soon gave up that idea one of the keenest witted women i ever met she gives you one look out of those lamps of eyes of hers and tots you up pretty correctly i can tell you no no she's as sane as you or i saner perhaps if the truth were known but there's something wrong somewhere whether it's fretting or remorse well. It's no use speculating. My opinion is this: she's wretchedly ill, and before she can get any better, the cause of it must be got at and treated. Perhaps you'll do it. B. S. seems to have failed, and I confess myself nowhere. Doctor Paul felt less distaste for his task after this interview with his colleague. In fact, his professional interest was awakened, and when three, then four days passed without his being summoned by the prince his surprise was flavoured with something akin to a feeling of disappointment on the fifth day when he was snatching a hasty breakfast the prince's broom drove up to the door and the count alighted alone and sent in a message might he see the doctor for one minute show him in here said he accordingly the count entered apologising for his intrusion it was necessary that i find you early docteur he said an opportunity comes that you see Madame la Princesse to-night. She has consented to visit the Covent Theatre to see the new opera, but excuse me, I do not understand. said Hugh Paul somewhat dryly. I do not go to theatres and operas. I have no time, still less should I go there to see patients. The count explained almost pathetically that the Prince had naturally feared that this was the case. And in anticipation of your refusal, Monsieur, I just paid visit to the lady Forward, to ask her to join in our appeal. He drew a note from his breast pocket. It was from Lady Forward, the wife of the popular baronet, Sir David Forward, who had been Hugh's friend for many years. Lady Forward was the only woman, with the exception of his sisters, with whom Doctor Paul was at all familiar. She was not only a good woman was possessed of the feminine gift of tact in a marked degree my dear doctor she wrote i am quite thankful to hear you have consented to see my old friend mercedes as i know you always like to have a good look at your patients i venture to propose that you should spare us half an hour and come to our box at covent garden to-night it is exactly opposite the prince andrioki's and you will be able to judge of my poor friend all the better because she will not know you are looking at her afterwards We can introduce you to her yours most truly, Margaret Forwood. P. S. The number of our box is nine. I will leave word at the door that you are coming. Hugh wavered, but before he knew that he had consented to the fair letter writer's proposition, the count had left him, and he could hardly withdraw his half-reluctant consent. I suppose I must go, he told himself. He disliked the proceeding altogether the sense that he was doing that which he reprehended in others acting for the great of this world in a manner he would certainly not act for the lowly oppressed him throughout the day it is a step in the wrong direction he told himself as he stood before the glass arranging that conventional white tie which he professed to disdain with the rest of men's enforced toggery as he called the swallow-tails and chimney-pots but i have let myself in for it somehow and must go through with it he would not have out his carriage he took a hansom to the opera house on entering he stood amazed there had been a drawing-room that day and the ladies who were alighting from their carriages and sailing and sweeping through the entrance hall and up the staircase were in all the bravery of silk satin and velvet and literally ablaze with jewels the heated air was scented with the perfumes they used and with the odour of the court bouquets they carried the scene of excessive luxury was foreign to the severe simplicity of dr paul's hard-working life i suppose it is all good for trade he thought as he made his way through the glittering throng to box nine but it seems a queer way for mortals to spend their time he was ushered into the box just as the final bars of the national anthem were being played for it was a semi-state performance in honour of a foreign potentate lady forwood a fair young dame with a bright face was standing in front of the box she turned to welcome him it is very good indeed of you to come she said as she warmly shook hands don't say no david and i flatter ourselves we understand you pretty well I know that nothing but a sense of duty brings you here however now that you are here you may as well have a good look at it all take that chair david is at the house he may look in but not till late there is some important debate on to-night now tell me it is a fine sight isn't it it certainly is said hugh the orchestra had struck up the spirited introduction to the new opera and the unaccustomed sounds of bright music insensibly raised his spirits the coudea of the gigantic horseshoe of tiers of crimson curtained boxes filled with ladies in brilliant attire white and the palest tints predominating was magnificent i never imagined women could look so like flowers said he honestly <laughs> i thought you would think better of us when you knew a little more about us laughed lady forwood who was scanning the house through her lorgnettes there mercedes has just come in how lovely she looks what a magnificent dress i suppose she was at the drawing-room i went last time so i was not there to-day where said hugh drawing back a little and feeling like a conspirator not in the chandelier and not exactly in the pit said lady forwood laughingly don't be shocked at me i positively can't help teasing people look at the third from the royal box there she is just settling herself and throwing off her mantilla the lady in white hugh was looking at the third box to the left of the royalties take my glass said lady forwood and look at the third box to the right of the royal people make haste for in another minute she may settle herself behind the curtain and stay there the whole evening it would be just like her hugh focused the glass and with a singular sensation that was almost a thrill he gazed at a lovely girl who was leaning forward glancing round the house she was pale with a waxen pallor her black hair was dressed high and studded with pearls she wore a white velvet gown a shade whiter than her beautifully moulded bust and arms and this appeared to be sewn with pearls so youthful was her slender form that had hugh not recognized the prince andriocchi and his friend the count hovering in the background he would hardly have believed this could be the new patient about whom so much fuss had been made she is quite a girl he said in surprise turning to lady forwood why not asked she she was only married a year ago spanish girls marry young but from what you said i fancied you had been girl friends said hugh without thinking how like you to say that said lady forwood with a good-natured laugh as hugh forgetting his dislike to the whole of spy scrutinized her highness closely through the glasses that is almost on a par with your speech to the princess m one of the stories she always tells to show what a bear you are sir i do not remember saying anything to the princess m said hugh laying down the lorgnette you don't remember her playing to you and your saying that you had never cared for any playing except that of a relation of yours no said hugh who was beginning to think deeply on the subject of his new case and his thoughts were curious and to him utterly unexpected but what did i say to you that was bearish just now lady forwood I don't care if her royal highness tells anecdotes about me or not it amuses her and doesn't harm me but i cannot be misunderstood by you that pretty speech makes up for the rude one said lady forwood smiling you seemed surprised that mercedes and i were girl friends of course i am her senior by some years i will tell you how it was her parents were anxious about her as a child she was such a delicate mopey little thing so they sent her to a convent school at the seaside in england i was what you might call a sixth-form girl when she came and as the nuns thought me steady-going they gave her to me to look after specially i was to be a sort of deputy mamma and she grew very fond of me poor little thing why do you say poor little thing asked Hugh. oh mercedes has always been peculiar said lady forwood the nuns thought her cold and apathetic i knew very differently there is fire underneath that cold manner of hers she is the most passionate girl i think i ever met and her parents have been idiots enough to marry her to that man you do not approve of the prince asked you hush we really must not talk any more people will notice us said lady forwood directing her lorgnettes toward the stage Where the prima donna had just finished an air which was evidently greatly to the taste of the pit and gallery hugh leaned back and during the remainder of the first act watched the princess andrioki as narrowly as he could without being specially noticed she sat perfectly still at first leaning back her white profile cameo-like against the crimson curtain her hands lying listlessly in her lap she appeared to be watching the stage But in reality, her eyes were more than half veiled by their heavy lids through the glass. He could see that her exquisite little ears were transparent as wax. Poor child, thought Hugh compassionately. He thought he knew now why the great B.S. and the clever Dr. Foster could neither of them relieve the little princess of her malaise. The cause was mental he had almost arrived at a resolution to get out of the affair if he possibly could when to his absent mind with a strange suddenness down came the curtain upon the first act among the plaudits of the house and people began to move and stand up there was a general air of awakening to life of the attentive audience well said lady forwood turning to him you must confess it is a charming opera the next thing to be done is to take me over to see Mercedes but this hugh steadily refused to do lady Forward was still endeavouring to persuade him by all the arguments at her command when the box door opened and the count entered he bowed profoundly to lady Forward and offered his hand deferentially to hugh who scrutinised him with a new misgiving was this man who shadowed the young pair in any way connected with that young creature's unhappiness he was certainly the sort of man that some women would consider fascinating, with his persuasive manners and his fair, handsome face. He had brought a message to Lady Forward. The princess wished to come round to her box. Would it be convenient? Lady Forward clapped her hands with evident delight. Hugh had not known her in this childlike, unaffected mood. "'Convenient? Splendid!' she said to the Count, who at once vanished could anything be better she asked hugh you will see her just as she really is when she is talking to her mammy as she calls me what is the matter she said suddenly in a changed voice for she saw her pale friend wince and bite his lip nothing i assure you he said earnestly recovering himself that word mammy had not been heard by him since lilia had last addressed mrs mervyn by the tender nickname in his presence. What seeming trifles are the featherweights that balance human destinies? But for the effect produced upon Hugh by that one word, he would have made an excuse and missed what? As he stood hesitating, the box door opened and the princess came in a girl with the carriage of a young queen. Hugh stood back and stared at the beautiful, dark young creature, in her magnificent robe of white velvet, embroidered with seed pearls, with but one feeling amazement. The princess gave him a careless glance, with a half nod, in return for his obeisance, as Lady Forward introduced him, and seated herself by her friend. She murmured something in a low voice to Lady Forward, upon which the English lady blushed and looked annoyed after some whispering lady forward turned to hugh with a beseeching look i am going to test your friendship to the utmost she said pleadingly i am half afraid to ask you but you will understand she added meaningly i want you to go down and see if sir david has arrived there is nothing particular to hear for the next ten minutes with pleasure said hugh understanding that the little princess had some secret to tell her friend and that he was not wanted for the next quarter of an hour a spoiled beauty he thought as he strolled along the lobbies i should like to know how any physician can cure that unless he inoculates her with the smallpox. he had hardly left the box before the princess's manner changed she clasped her friend's hand and with her lovely face all quivering the corners of her lips drooping and her great eyes full of tears she almost sobbed oh mammy mammy it is true it is true my dear what is true you have been thinking such strange things said lady forward distressed and worried for she loved the unhappy little creature you have got some silly notions into your head and you imagine all sorts of nonsense listen said mercedes glancing round and speaking low to-day he told me that he and the count would go on the river i had to go to the court alone well i thought i would ask the ambassadress to take me it would not be so long she has the entre as you call it she did take me coming back my carriage got into a number of other carriages and i saw him the prince well why not asked lady forward i saw him and her the woman whose portrait i found said mercedes in a tone of anguish well my dear lady Forward spoke in a matter-of-fact manner although she was anathematizing the prince for his flagrant conduct in being publicly seen with the beautiful french actress whose name had been coupled with his in society gossip i dare say he will be able to explain it all to you if indeed you are not mistaken how explain asked mercedes bitterly how explain a lie mammy hush said lady Forward uneasily my dear i never should have worried david if i had seen him with fifty women that is different said the princess mammy you love each other lady Forward began a brisk lecture my child you are not fit to be out in the world at all she said You ought to have come to me for a year's instruction before you were married instead of going straight to the altar from the convent you know absolutely nothing about men men's ways are not women's ways the world allows them their liberty and if their wives don't allow it them also they will neglect their wives for the world and the wives will be to blame and she held forth on this somewhat loose doctrine so subtly that the princess's expression gradually changed from grieved perplexity to a sort of placid resignation a man is not bad who allows a lady acquaintance to take him some distance in her carriage went on lady forward didactically you will be wiser by and by darling you will take it for granted that men are better than they seem the count is good said mercedes sorrowfully he is so kind to me the count is no better than his neighbours said lady forward sharply feeling that from Scylla she was nearing charybdis mercedes you must rouse yourself and go into society then you will not brood on the subject of your husband you can't change him at least not all of a sudden so you must put up with him the count says began mercedes don't talk about the count to me you know my opinions of italians my dear you shall be introduced to some englishmen you must know this friend of ours that you made me turn out of the box just now david says he is the best man he ever met at this moment hugh knocked at the box door he had been outside in the cool night he had not seen sir david he had not expected to do so he had watched the arrival of some late comers and unnoticed by them had seen the prince andrioki and his friend the count come out of the opera house light their cigarettes and remain in close conversation for a few minutes after which they interchanged a glance of intelligence the prince hailed a hansom and drove off and the count re-entered the theatre so he interpreted the steady gaze which mercedes fixed upon him as he told lady forwood there was no sign of her husband's arrival as a mute questioning as to the whereabouts of the prince the count having established himself alone in the opposite box and the next occurrence startled him the curtain was rising he was turning to take his seat at the back of the box when the princess suddenly leant towards lady forwood mammy i have seen this gentleman before she added turning to hugh he smiled amused at the startled look in her gazelle eyes you have the advantage of me princess he said i do not think i have had the honour of meeting you before to-night and yet he was puzzled looking at her steadily there was something in the wistful childish beauty of mercedes oval face which was familiar She had some resemblance to someone he had seen somewhere. But, even as he ransacked his memory, the likeness eluded him, as a forgotten name will refuse to repeat itself when the thinker struggles to recall it. You two had better talk over your previous acquaintance behind the curtain, I think, said Lady Forward. Hugh took the hint. He drew his chair nearer to the princess, and asked her where they possibly could have met while lady forward became absorbed in the performance you have been much in england any one can tell that who hears you speak he said but have you been in london never till now said mercedes still scrutinizing him with a feeling of uneasiness for she felt that this worn-looking but attractive man with the prematurely white hair was no stranger to her yet she could not recall how or when she had seen him I have lived seven no eight years in the convent at b blank. that is where mammy and i were together with an affectionate look towards her friend but to london i came not once when i returned to spain we went by new haven this is the first time i see london curious said hugh half to himself the resemblance to someone he had known was stronger while she was speaking and yet there was nothing definite about it. It stirred him strangely, but what the emotion was which disturbed him and quickened his ordinarily sluggish pulses he could not tell. "'Were you ever in Surrey?' he suggested, after a few minutes' fruitless mental searching. "'Never in any place here but the convent,' she said, decidedly. "'But you, sir, perhaps you were in B-blank sometime?' "'Never.' said hugh then you have perhaps been in my country in spain not yet said hugh they both smiled and then suddenly remembering that they were strangers talked more reservedly of the music which the princess appeared to know well i had the pianoforte score for a week she informed dr paul the composer lent me his manuscript i played it for him when he was in madrid she was telling hugh of what was to come during the ensuing acts when the box-door opened and the count came in the prince requested me to escort you home at the end of the act madame la princesse he said in english bowing very slightly to dr paul but my husband where is he monsieur the count shrugged his shoulders with an appealing smile to lady forward he must go to the club for an hour madame when you arrive at the house he will without doubt be there mercedes sat silent till the close of the act and she rose abruptly hurled out her hand to lady Forward, said adieu monsieur with a melancholy little smile to hugh and left the box on the count's arm well said lady Forward, eagerly when the two were alone well he repeated coolly Some glamour under the influence of which he had unbent, had forgotten his ordinary almost apathy to his surroundings, had passed away. He was on guard again. Tell me frankly what you think of her. I love her so much, said Lady Forwood eagerly and honestly. There is nothing the matter with her physically, said Hugh, but mentally, as I told her husband, I do not profess to cure the mind. Do you not see how miserable she is, Doctor Paul? We must do something for her," said Lady Forward energetically. "You can even more than I. She wants friends. She wants some powerful mind to control hers and lead her to live her own life, without reference to the prince. That were wretched young man—he neglects her shamefully, and how he can throw her with that countess, he does. Everyone is talking about it. My dear Lady Forward, what can I do?" asked Hugh helplessly. Had she spoken to him thus before he had met Mercedes, he would have thought she was taking leave of her senses. Oddly enough, now her appeal did not strike him as in any way peculiar. I could see her professionally and give her a few hints, but I could not talk to her openly as you could, he added hesitatingly. What I want is for her to take an interest in something, Dr. Paul. I don't mean an ordinary interest. But something that will occupy her energies will distract her from brooding over her wrongs oh she is wronged poor child david thinks very badly of the prince i would not believe anything so dreadful of a fellow-creature oh dear me here is david a portly pleasant-looking man who seemed as if the world suited him and he it came in with a "Hullo! you don't look best pleased to see me my dear i don't wonder it isn't often she gets you all to herself is it paul Well, we've won majority of seventeen for our motion. Sir David talked away about the debate just over, and as soon as he could take leave, Hugh quitted the theatre. Walking through the streets under the dark night sky, he seemed awakening from some vivid dream in which he had behaved in a manner in which he would certainly not have behaved when awake. Letting himself in with his key, he rang for Jones. You can go to bed. I shall sit up to do some work, he said. You will find the letters in the library, sir, said Jones with extra gravity. Very well, said Hugh. Then he flung himself into a chair and began to think. That girl and I have met before, he mused. But how? When? When I looked into her eyes, I felt she understood me, and I understand her what on earth induced lady forward to ask me to look after her he almost laughed here in the big lonely house which for years had been as a hermitage to him the idea of his being asked to become mentor to a lovely spanish princess seemed an absurdity let me see what grantly has to say about spain and the spaniards he said to himself going to the bookshelves and taking down a volume Captain Grantly was a patient of his who had travelled in Spain and recorded his experiences in print. For the next half-hour, he was reading about bullfights, romantic ruins seen by moonlight, mantillas, dark-eyed beauties, unpleasant railway journeys, and stuffy hostelries where the diet appeared to be garlic fried in oil. Nothing seemed to remind him of his princess, but he was still reading on when a cab drove up and there was a ring at the hall bell. At this hour. It was nearly midnight. He went into the hall, unbarred and opened the door. Father? His lanky son stepped joyfully in. Why, you look surprised. Surely you got my letter, he said, after depositing bags and hampers in the hall. Your letter? No, said Dr. Paul. Somehow, Ralph's unexpected arrival was a slight shock to him. I thought you were not coming back for a week yet, he said after they went into the dining-room we were away more than the fortnight father said the pale lad with a smile as sad as his dead young mother's had been when her morbid sensitiveness was wounded but you don't look well you have been worried into going to some dinner-party or another with a glance at his father's evening dress i must not go away again they will do for you among them i am not dead yet you see said hugh feeling a new embarrassment until now there had been a confidence between him and the delicate lad who looked at him with his lost lilia's eyes which was more like the mutual understanding between attached brothers than that of father with son for the first time dr paul felt reluctant to speak of his doings to ralph but you must want some supper he suggested i will call up one of the servants ralph protested that he was not in the least hungry and that he had had some sandwiches at derby station which was literally true although on his way from the terminus he had thought pleasantly of the snug supper with his father which he fully expected was in store for him his reception had effectually satisfied his youthful appetite by the way joan said something about letters in the library just get them will you perhaps yours may be among them i have had an extra busy day and was interrupted at breakfast hadn't time to open my letters said hugh uneasily ralph hastened to execute his father's command and returned with a bundle of letters in his hand here is yours unopened as you see said dr paul showing ralph his own letter which he had neglected with the rest of his morning's correspondence it was a fortunate thing i had not gone to bed ralph looked astonished his father the acme of punctiliousness in business speaking so carelessly of a whole batch of unopened letters what could it mean i have something to show you father he said gently the poor boy thought that the fortnight's loneliness had wrought this change in his beloved parent whom he understood about as much as a beetle understands an eagle and he fetched two small packing-cases with lightly fastened lids There he said are they not beautiful i made the ivy one myself he opened the cases and removed some wadding dr paul stared with some perplexity at two wreaths one of ivy the other of white lilies then he bit his lip he remembered for the first time since lilia's death he had not noted the approach of the anniversary of that terrible day when his son's baby hand had held him back from the one unforgivable sin self-murder on that day it had been his custom to take Lilia's son to her grave and talk to him of his mother of what was best in her that the memory of a mother should be even more to the boy than the influence of that mother had she lived this time he had forgotten they are beautiful ralph he said placing his hand affectionately on his boy's shoulder let us put them in a cool place and go to bed we must be up early to-morrow he had not counted these last days as days of the month he had made careless engagements for tuesdays or wednesdays or other days in the week and to-morrow he had appointments with important patients and a consultation it looks like decadence strangely like decadence he told himself bitterly as looking in the glass he noted the deep lines on his face the haggard look in his eyes i did not remember the twenty-first and now i must cancel everything to-morrow for the boy's sake i must be consistent i must take him to his mother's grave but to let everything go to the wall well it must be done but this shall be a lesson no more fooling with princes and princesses solid sensible work brave determination dr paul but when you made it did fate smile or shed a tear end of chapter nine